Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there, whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week. It's Monday, July 26th, 2021, and we're excited to talk about all the fish. I'm Katrina Liebick with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Euro, a well-dressed fisherman. Today, we're really happy to have Nate Weesey with us. Nate's the Lower Snake River Compensation Plan Coordinator for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and we're planning to dig into Columbia River steelhead today. We're also going to weave in a special topic in addition to the usual fish talk, and that topic is temperature. Since we've been seeing some record high temps this summer, and temperature is actually a pretty big deal for fish. So welcome, Nate. Thanks for the intro, Katrina. So first question, um... Your job title is kind of a mouthful there. Can you just give us a super quick, like 20,000 foot view of what you do and what that job title means? Yeah, I'm like a fish herder, herder of fish and people. I work out of, the, out of Boise and we manage 26 projects that are mitigating for the Snake River Dam. So the, there's four lower Snake River Dams put in for mostly hydroelectric power and also uh, flood control. And so when they put those in in the early Planning was in the 60s, put them in the early 70s, and they decided we need to mitigate for lost salmon that can't migrate around these dams. And so hence the Lower Snake River Compensation Plan Program invests about $30 million a year into salmon and steelhead recovery. Sweet. And Snake yeah. River kind of in relation to Columbia, what's the what's the deal with how these systems are connected? When you look at the, the Columbia River system, of course, we've blocked off about give or take 50% of the available fish habitat for anadromous fish. So fish that are coming out of the ocean up to the rivers. Of that, the snake represents um, a pretty big proportion of the spawning habitat for the whole Columbia that's left intact. And so um, I don't know the exact percentage, but we're a significant player in the Columbia River system for spawning habitat for salmon and steelhead. So steelhead, it's the given name for coastal rainbow trout and spend part of their life at sea. Can you paint a picture for the folks listening um, basically about what these fish look like, what they're doing this time of year naturally? Yeah, absolutely. Steelhead are pretty neat. Um, you know, I think they are just a coastal version of rainbow trout. So same scientific name on Arachismicus, I believe still. And, but they have that advantage of being going to the oceans. And you go to the ocean, just like any salmonid stocks, you're going to grow a lot larger. They'll, in the ocean, they're really not a huge uh, commercial fishery for steelhead um, or sport fishery. They kind of disappear out there, but they are chrome silver, just like a salmon. When they return back up, they'll they'll start exhibiting those classic spawning colors or what you normally think of a rainbow trout with a crimson stripe down the side, kind of get the olive on the back and the spotting and really a beautiful looking fish. Also notorious for being very hard fighting on the rod and uh, just a great sport fish for people to catch. Where are they right now? And we call these uh, the stock and the sneaker stock steelhead or summer steelhead. And so they are just starting to nose up the Columbia. And we just had some tags past the dam this week and we'll see more and more about Historically, probably in the one to 5% of the run range. So one to 5% of them are, are coming up this time of the year and they'll continue building here as the summer progresses. Seemingly, everyone knows that dams like this can prevent salmon from migrating up to spawning grounds, but they also create these large lakes of slow moving water. And I got to imagine that probably affects the temperature and the habitat that these fish are living in. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely, Guy. You know, when we put in the dams, we came up with fish ladders so adults could jump up. We came up with transportation strategies so small smolts could get around, but we're still stuck with this pool effect where water is now backed up and that water heats up. And so 
Right now, it's real timely. We're seeing record temperatures across the Pacific Northwest. Boise's not left out. We just missed our all-time record. We had nine days straight of 100 degrees. Oh, man. And that's not, whole, that's not letting up. So what we're seeing in these reservoirs, in the, in the water backed up behind the dams, water temperatures are starting to get up above 70 degrees, which is considered a, basically a thermal block, a lethal temperature where these salmon will hit that. They just will not nose into it and they'll turn around and look for something else. And unfortunately, in these conditions, there isn't a whole lot of places to go. You mentioned that they are really hard fighting fish, and I can attest to that. The few steelhead I've caught have put a, an impressive fight. But fighting like that, I imagine it really uses up oxygen. And in when we have these warm temperatures like this, like these super high temperatures, the water can't hold as much oxygen. So is there concerns that anglers, if they're trying to catch fish that they might want to release, that it might be dangerous to do that? You're absolutely right, Guy. That's the, the biology behind it. The fish is just having trouble breathing. And so... The higher we go on water temps, especially these fish like steelhead are adapted to really high oxygen levels to perform. Um, they'll struggle. You'll, you can struggle to revive them. And so something to keep an eye out for sure. Some, some guidelines out there. Fortunately, some of the places we have in Idaho still, once they'll come up through these thermal block areas with the dams and that pools and stuff, they have some refugia area up in these high mountain areas where they can get into some colder water. And I think you can safely do some angling without uh, causing too much damage. Right on. What are some of the other native fish in the system that are coming up this time of year that might also be affected by the warming temperatures? Well, certainly a couple that come to mind in an anadromous world. So again, to ocean world, the sockeye salmon um, is one that really is struggling to deal with these thermal blocks. And that is kind of a real iconic fish, especially up here in Idaho at Redfish Lake where fish would travel almost 900 miles to spawn. So they swim up and collect in this large uh, lake habitat that was at high elevation, five to 6,000 feet. And so, yeah, you're seeing those fish, uh, you know, we'll still have in place throughout the summer, they're trapped, what they're calling trap and haul. So they'll trap them at one of the projects, Lower Granite Dam, and then haul those fish here to just outside of Boise to a captive rearing center. This was done Previously, we did it in 2015, unfortunately, a very low water, high temperature year. And we're seeing that again as, and we expect to see it more in the future as climate change um, makes these high temperatures events more and more frequent. In the Columbia River Basin, I know that there's been introductions of a lot of non-native species, oftentimes uh, warmer water species such as walleye and black bass species. What can warmer temperatures do for them? Are they going to have a more extreme competitive advantage compared to some of these native species? You know, I think the research isn't quite as as solid as we've got for the the steelhead and the salmonids, where we've got a lot of tagging efforts in those, but we're definitely seeing it. Their walleye fishery is starting to really take off in the Columbia system and up the snake. You're seeing even guided fishing trips targeting these fish now. And so as we increase these populations of just pacivorous fish, You've got these factors that are shifting the balance of a system, a Columbia River system that was salmonid focused, and now it's shifting to another species, other species. If we were to look back like a hundred years, what would that native fish community look like? How would steelhead fit in? How would, you know, the more resident rainbow trout and maybe some of the other like red band trout kind of look if we were to take a look back compared to today? I think as you look back, you know, what you would see, especially where where red band trout are, you know, you're, when you're talking about steelhead and red bands, you're almost, you're talking about the same species. And so a component 
of that particular species was going to be an address. They were going to try, they were going to go for it. They were going to swim down the Columbia, take the 850 mile gamble so that they could come back huge, put down a huge number of offspring. And really that was their life strategy. Now, a component of that group of fish would be like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going for it. I'm not trying 900 miles. I'm going to stick it out here, tough it out in the mountains of Idaho, probably only going to grow it to be about six or seven inches long. That's big enough. And then I'm going to spawn and I'm going to have less eggs, but I got a safer bet with less predators up here in the mountains. So really neat life history. And you see that manifest itself still today. And we found that we can influence it. So if we take a fish, put it in a hatchery setting where we control a lot of the variables, if we start messing with a photo period, we can trick those fish into thinking we should just stay. So if you put lights on all night, like you're like, man, I need security lights around this facility to, to keep fish from, you know, I don't say I can watch them. You'll trick the fish into thinking it's daylight all the time and they will not leave. They're like, this is a great place to stay. The second part is if you uh, overfeed them, being a hatchery fish, is like being a couch potato, you just sit on your couch and you throw potato chips down on top and you just eat, 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 eat. You do that too long. The fish is like, life is so good up here in the mountains. I am just going to stay. And they'll never make that transition to go take that journey down. So hundred years ago, you'd still see that now with hatchery influences and stuff where you're seeing changes in that and shifting it around. Can you give us some context? Like we've got what fish and wildlife conservation hatcheries, other state hatcheries, what percentage of these fish, these steelhead are wild versus hatchery reared and just kind of what role are hatcheries playing in this overall kind of conservation picture? You know, the program that I work on, Lower St. Comp program, we actually provide funding sources for six different entities. And that's a conglomeration of states, Idaho Fish and Game, Washington, Department of Fish and Wildlife, Oregon, and then also tribes. So you would tell the tribe is a big player, Nez Perce tribe. Uh, Shoshone Bannock tribe too. So these are operators of these facilities. Um, they're putting facilities, I say, is are uh, a combination of hatcheries and then trapping in like facilities where we'll actually remove hatchery fish out of the system and allow wild fish to go up and spawn naturally. Unfortunately, we've seen pretty large drops in our wild populations. And that's the face of climate change, more predators, uh, tougher migration route and, and and ocean conditions that haven't been favorable. So we're not in a place that we want to be as far as steelhead numbers. These aren't cheap projects. Uh, so I'm curious where the initial funding for everything that you've mentioned actually comes from. This program, we're going to invest about $31 million a year into this into the snake programs to mostly supplement hatchery fish, also study them, make sure we've got tagging on those. Every single fish that we're going to put out is going to have an adipose clip. We'll talk about later when we talk about fishing and how, how you know which is the fish you can keep. But the funding ultimately all starts with Bonneville Power Association. So Bonneville Power Association manages all the dams on the Columbia River system, and they're selling the hydropower to electric companies. As part of those sales, they're responsible to fund these mitigation programs to make up for the loss of the salmon and steel in the system. So you don't see any gen, what we would call general tax dollars. So your income tax dollars don't come here, but when you pay your power bill in the Northwest, you're paying for these programs. You know, you mentioned adipose fins. Which fish can you fish for? Are, you know, are some of the populations threatened? What's kind of the angling situation currently? And then I'd be interested in hearing a little bit more about the historical fishing as well, if, if you have that knowledge. So the adipose fins, that fin between the tail and the dorsal fin on the top, it's a very small fin. And what we've noticed over the years, if you remove that fin, two things are great about it. One, it doesn't regenerate. 
two, it doesn't seem to affect the fish performance. So we've got data where we've tagged fish both sides. It just doesn't seem to affect them that much. So when you're way downriver, for the most part, you're only going to be allowed to catch and keep fish without an adipose fin. Some of the upper top spots where I have steel in Idaho, I'm going to say is the longest migration we have in Columbia. It's about 850, 900 miles. So you imagine you've got all those river miles of freshwater fishing. You don't see a ton of harvest in the ocean, but you will see fishing immediately on steelhead. They're relatively fun fish to catch. But the very intriguing part, if you go back a ways, now, now before there's kind of this big Western migration and you had more of the, the tribes here just fishing, the neat thing about the Columbia Basin is you had so many runs of salmon and steelhead that it was basically a year-round supply. There was fish coming up and utilizing this habitat and coming through the corridors year-round. And what's interesting about steelhead is they'll actually come up and they're going to come a ways up the river. And a lot of times, uh, especially in this warm water, they're going to seek some thermal refugia. So they're going to seek out some cold water spots where they can hang. Those are tremendous spots to go fishing for them. And then as the water cools in the fall, they're going to continue their migration up. So that's where you're going to be looking for them when you're fishing too. Okay. So you mentioned these adipose fin clips and catching and keeping those fish. Say you catch one that doesn't have a clip. What are some best like practices in terms of handling the fish to reduce stress and release it, you know, into the wild again, where it can continue on its journey? I think some of it even starts like before you even have the fish, you know, before you're even out there fishing and and one is just gear selection. And a lot of, a lot of regulations are going to limit you, but you know, a lot of times we ask is let's use single hooks. Let's use barbless hooks. We're trying to put that hook out in the mouth area, not down in the gills. We're going to damage those gills. And then I always tell people like, you know, I love fishing catch and release and like light lines and everything, but find a happy medium where you don't want to be playing this fish forever. So pick a line weight that's in that 15 pound range, maybe 20 pound range where you're, you're dealing with a big fish potentially. What are like lure choice? How are you displaying the lure in the water? What are some just like actual techniques that you re- recommend for folks to use to, to be successful? Again, I like the Clearwater Basin's a great place. The Salmon River, when we're up in these kind of higher order streams, they're not that deep. So you're going to be weight fishing them. So you're going to need a good set of waders and a stout wading pole because these things are swift and fast. And then you got two options. One, go with a fly rod option, more traditional style or a spinning rod. So let's go on a fly rod option you'll see you're going to want a pretty legit rod. A lot of times if we're going to do a spay casting setup where this is where we're going to try to run a lot of line off of fast water, it's going to be 11, 12 foot rod in that eight, nine, 10 weight range. We're going to be dealing with a fish that could be in that 15, 20. I mean, the state record seal in Idaho is 30 pounds. Dang. So these are legit fish. And when you hook them, they still got a lot of anger left in them from being in the ocean. And then once you get that set up, we're going to we're going to put on a, you can put on traditional salmon flies or even a muddler minnow. We're looking for something that size in that two, three, four, five, pretty big looking offering and a little bit of lead to get it down. We're just going to drift it through these fast runs. These fish are going to be working their way up. They're going to be resting a little bit, but a lot of fish for catching are working between holes coming up the river. And we're going to cast across the current, let that thing drift down. We're cast across the current, let it drift down over and over and over and over. Repeat, 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 repeat. For like eight to 11 hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll throw this out there. Uh, I know some people who like to fish like the Deschutes River. Now that's further down in the drainage, but they'll have a big old stonefly hatch coming off in the summer. Will these guys ever hit topwater dry flies or anything? Or is that rare? It's rare, but I think those are the ones people always talk about getting steelhead to come up on the top water. It's definitely something to have in your fly box when you're out there. It's uh, not out of the question. Once you've got the fish on, 
you know, that we have catch and keep seasons too. Then, and we encourage people to harvest those fish, especially that because we've marked them as hatchery fish and they're in surplus of what we need. So they're definitely a, a great table fare to take home. But if you, if you're seeing that you can see it, it's a wild fish, try to get that fish in as quickly as possible. Use a net or tail the fish. So you're not dragging a fish up on the bank and just get that hook out as quickly as possible. Give them a little chance to revive, um, get them pointed back upstream where they can take off on their own and they should do just fine. You have any recommendations on how to take a photo with a fish that you plan to release that's least stressful for the fish? Get in the water with the fish. You know, those are real nice photos and get your camera person ready so that you can just lift the fish up and quickly snap a couple of photos or take these photos that are half in the water. I think you do just fine. You know, the things you want to avoid are dragging a fish on the bank, grabbing them with wool gloves, you know, rubbing that slime layer off. We can see handprints on fish for people who grab that fish with gloves. Oh, we can see, right, you did that because you took the slime off, then that becomes the spot where um, fungus will start. It'll take that spot. You can literally see handprints on fish. say you catch one it's got that clip you're gonna keep it what do you do next how do you what's your you know what are some recommendations on how to prepare these fish how to keep them good until you get them to where you're gonna fillet them how do you consume these these awesome fish Um, i always recommend you know let the fish suffer we're gonna club it over the head with a nice stick knock it out then i take and slice the gill arches we're gonna bleed the fish out it makes a nice quality fillet it's pretty common with salmon or steelhead and then we want to get the fish cold as quickly as possible. So you can bleed the fish out in the river. Generally, the river temperatures are going to be cold enough for that. But then immediately, as soon as within about five to 10 minutes, I get that fish right on ice. Cut them out if you want. You don't need to get the fish on ice, cool down. They'll be fine for as much time to get back to camp. Once you get back out, a couple options. I like to flay them. My favorite recipe is smoked steelhead. Quality is a little bit less than when you're down at the ocean if you're up river. So um, do a dry brine, one part brown sugar, one part salt, layer that layer on top of fish and then more fish, keep layering that, and then put an alder smoke on that for ideally a cold smoke for four to six hours and then finish it off to about 120, 103 degrees. Now you got a great product. You can make a smoked steelhead fettuccine if you want out of that. You can make smoked salmon dip out of put some sour cream, onions, garlic together, and great dip on crackers, or just eat it straight after you vacuum seal it. So a really neat product to have. That sounds awesome. What does the fillet look like compared to say like a sockeye salmon that's really red? What's the coloration of these fish's fillets? Yeah. So what so what you'll see was is which is really neat. Once these fish get way up river, most of their energy, the that real orange coloration you would have saw from a sockeye, or you'll see in these steel when they're down river, has now migrated two places. One, if you're a female, into the eggs, and they've put a lot of energy and all that beta carotene has now gone and given those eggs that real orange color. And the males will go out to the skin generally and get that bright red crimson yeah. stripe across them. So really neat. So your fillet quality color is going to decline. It's going to go to this almost white color at the very end. And again, that's why I recommend smoking them. You're going to get a little bit better uh, product out of smoking. It's going to be a little softer than it would have been lower fat content as allows nutrients that have gone down to the eggs or to the uh, spawning colors. Well, cool, Nate. It's been great having you today. Well, thanks so much for the opportunity. And yeah, get out there and enjoy some fish in the lower 48 too. And we've got steelhead coming up, so it should be another good year. Get out there and enjoy all the fish, everybody. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebick and my co-host is Guy Iro. 
Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar, produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore, production management by Gabriella Montequin, post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region, Office of External Affairs. As the service reflects on 150 years of fisheries conservation, we honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individuals, tribes, the state of Alaska, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.